Welcome to Scholars in Spotlight. Today we have Melissa Sturry. She's returning for the second podcast in this series. Um, we have recorded this conversation in two parts. And uh, Melissa is a transdisciplinary design scientist and also complex system theorist. If you would listen to her first podcast, you'll notice that one of her main interests is that how to help humanity to build a better world. And in this conversation, you'll especially notice that she's been pulling strings from different disciplines to answer various different questions which I was asking. Above all, she's a lovely person to talk to and ask these kind of questions. So without further ado, let's welcome Lessa Sterry. So you are in France. I'm in France, yes. I'm in Southwest France. Okay. I also I, I imagine because you are a designer, uh, I imagine your house would be a, like a treat to actually visit. So <laughs> it, it might be really eccentric kind of uh, really weird architect's house. Am I correct or no, I have my my taste is very it's not minimalist, but um it is streamlined as it were but there are a lot of i have a lot of natural artifacts so i have created uh well i've collected a number of specimens that relate to my work and so i have you know my family joke that it's like walking into the natural history museum <laughs> uh, so yeah there are there are a lot of specimens which is mainly because well firstly obviously they're useful from a scientific perspective it's 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 good to have the things that I am most interested in to hand but also because uh sourcing of images uh of the the various samples can actually be quite tricky and you know some of the um imagery that is out there I'm not always happy with the aesthetics so in having my own it's it's obviously not quite as large as the <laughs> natural history museum or indeed um you know um many many other collections but uh I have what I need. And so, yeah, there are, there are lots of little bits of the natural world uh, scattered around the house and outside we're in a highly biodiverse area. And so, you know, I look out pretty much every day. I look out and I will see something interesting going on. Uh, and certainly if I take a walk um, and, you know, inspect the, uh, we have a meadow. If I inspect the meadow, then I find all sorts of interesting bugs and flora and things going on. And um, I actually, have a nature journal that I log down the species I find and what they're doing and so forth so yeah it's uh I walk my nature talk as it were <laughs> <laughs> so Melissa last time we uh, had a podcast in between the event future cities event if I'm correct that's uh, right yeah, yeah. In, in London and that's that's a brilliant intro if someone you know want to go back and listen a little bit about um some of the aspects of your research and what your visions are around cities and our relationship with the environment. Uh, but what is your view on uh, like nature in lockdown right now, how we are seeing that 
our relationship with the natural environment is probably maybe changing or evolving or we are understanding it a little bit better? It's an incredibly interesting period on on many levels because what this pandemic does is it illuminates the effectively the shortcomings, the problems within and of our current relations with the natural world. So at the most basic of levels, of course, while we know not quite what the origin of this particular virus is, and obviously there are various theories, and personally I think the probability that this came from, obviously we we know it came from a wild species, um, but the probability that it effectively came to uh, you know, into our world, as it were, through the sort of processes that were actually very well portrayed in the film Contagion and that have been discussed in various best-selling books by a number of etymologists and um, journalists that have that have studied the fields, that being that effectively we, uh, you know, we're encroaching on the natural world. We are for various reasons, be it poaching or wildlife trafficking um, or logging or simply you know, carving roads and transport networks through virgin habitats or other, you know, we are increasingly encroaching on the natural world. And because of that, we're coming into contact with more and more viruses. And I think that that is most likely the route that this particular virus came along. But, um, you know, what it has highlighted is not just the problem there, but also the fact that more generally, we are, um, you know, we're, we're, keeping livestock, for example, in the factory farms, and we are, um, you know, we are distributing livestock. So, for example, in the wet markets in ways that are very, very high risk to us as a species, and of course, in turn, to other species, and that these processes are reducing biodiversity, they are causing immense stress to ecological systems, and of course, they are deeply unethical. And so, a, a Big light has been shone on that. Also, of course, another really sad aspect of this development is that we have seen that deforestation is up by 65% in the Amazon so far. And that is because, uh, you know, unscrupulous persons are taking advantage of the fact that the monitoring systems are uh, not, uh, some, some aspects of those monitoring systems are not in play, i.e. the manpower on the ground that actually uh, effectively implement the checks and the measures to try and keep de- deforestation down. Um, we also today, at, well, actually this week, we've seen a report come out that sh- has shown raptor killings, illegal raptor killings of peregrines and kites and various other species in the UK are up. And of course, we also see that poaching of uh, rhino and the big, the big um, five, uh, amongst other species in Africa, is also up. So this has also shone a light on the fact that for all the communications, for all the data, for all the in understanding within and off and beyond the scientific community, that we really have to. Uh, you know, protect biodiversity and protect species. There are they that, given half a chance, will exploit any disaster or any or any disruption to society. But again, juxtaposed against that, there is actually something very good and heartwarming, and that is the fact that whereas it has been species that have been contained, be that because we've been essentially 
um, we've been turning uh, systems, we've been turning biomes that have been interconnected into islands wherein species have been locked into ever uh, decreasing circles of land or uh, within of our towns and cities where some of our behaviours are actually inhibiting to other species, be it the extent of the noise pollution or the light pollution or the just general activity of humans, um, that has been reversed, wherein now it is not the species that are so much contained, but it is us. And the term I would give this is the human zoo. And that has brought about some very interesting developments um, which it's some it's somewhat difficult to actually quantify at the moment because of course as with so many other facets of the online environment there's lots of fake news so for example you know the dolphins swimming in the canals of <laughs> Venice uh, that has been debunked and doubtless there will be you know there, there's a lot of footage that is bouncing around that has no um, it has no source of origin let alone you know date place uh, or really anything that can actually substantiate the credibility of the footage. Um, now, again, there's, there's a little bit of a sad aspect on that in that actually to protect a lot of wildlife, you do actually need to obscure, uh, you know, to obscure the source of the origin. So it's, it's often important, particularly if it's a, um, a relatively rare species or a species that is vulnerable to um, human activity. You know, you, you, you don't want to be too precise about quite where you saw that species and when and so forth, because obviously many species are very uh they're very habitual, they're very um, repetitive in their in their behaviour. And so, um, you know, if, if you reveal the location and the time and so forth, you could actually be exposing the species to danger. But nonetheless, um, the anecdotal evidence, or not anecdotal evidence, but the anecdotal uh, data, as it were, um, suggests that some really interesting things are occurring in terms of animal behaviour in the built environment in towns and cities, uh, the interface there with, uh, you know, in that I have friends in the suburbs that are reporting, as have many others, that deer and other species are aggregating in greater numbers. They're being seen a little bit more often than they, than they have for many years. So it is interesting. And the value in that will be variable, obviously, depending, first of all, on how well we quantify what has actually happened um and of course with that it will very much depend on people in that on the one hand we're hearing a lot of uh individuals say oh you know goodness well being locked inside has made me realize how you know how much i value the outdoors and how much i appreciate nature but then the flip side of that is that human memory can actually be very short and there is the possibility the very real possibility that you know if a vaccine is developed and if treatments and so forth come into being uh, that effectively enable us to go back to living more or less as was, people could actually revert to precisely the same sort of behaviours and we could not merely see um, the you know non-human life, as it were, see fauna uh, retracting back to the places where it had effectively it enclaved itself prior to the outbreak but we could actually see um yet a, a worse situation still wherein for example animals that in the lockdown period that you know across a period of months have become used to populating human environments they've been used you know they've, they've gotten used to coming into our towns or our cities 
are then exposed to danger because, of course, the life cycles of these species are sometimes really very short. So with, you know, if this lockdown or, you know, the disruption to human uh, or to built environments lasts for sake of argument, nine months, well, that is long enough for some species to have, you know, been born to have effectively become uh, adult within and of, you know, uh, their, their, you know, their life term. And they're on to really know nothing else other than uh, what they witnessed in the lockdown. And of course, species will adapt their behaviours to what they, uh, to the environments that they are used to. And so there are some dangers as well. Um, mm. The crux of it is that, yes, this, this is shining a light on the worst and the best of humanity and all the problems, but also all the possibilities of um, our future relationship with the natural world. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me uh, when you were talking about that humans forget. It's uh, from British, uh, I think he's a journalist and a, a writer, Graham Hancock. He writes about ancient civilizations that he says that mm. he, he is, humans uh, is a species with amnesia. I mean, as a species, we mm. have amnesia. We just keep on forgetting our past. And mm. we may, that's one of the reasons why we kind of go back to the same patterns. Uh, other than that, actually, um, it, you you know how you mentioned that humans are now being locked as they were somehow doing it to the other species. It's mm. like uh, terraforming, uh, you know, how terraforming came mm. from science fiction slowly mm. with Carl Sagan writing in 60s and 70s about, uh, you know, somehow speculatively traveling in the space in some sort of a real way and then in the in the sci-fi you can see that how uh with the war of the world one of the first times it was some other people coming so so Mm. that that uh imperialist colonialistic aspect of transforming like the the even in the fantasy the urge is strong to even transform all the other planets or the planet mm. they encounter according to the human need. But mm. then in that story, you know, the Mar- Martians came and they were, of course, doing this to us. Mm. Uh, but, but, Look, so, H.G. Wells, um, yeah. he, he was quite, uh, Mars comes up a lot in, in H.G. Wells' yeah. writing, which um, is partly because, of course, at that time, you know, um, astronomy was really, and, and uh, you know, uh, studies of space in general were really starting to take off, but there were still many unknowns. And so their idea as to, you know, and H.G. Wells' idea as to quite what could be happening on Mars was, uh, uh, well, seemingly today would seem rather ridiculous in mm-hmm. that, um, you know, he uh, and, and indeed many of his time thought that, you know, there could very well be macro life on on Mars as, as here on Earth. But actually, you know, H.G. Wells, his work's very interesting because he he effectively creates uh, layers within his works. And so you can read in H.G. Wells uh, story, particularly the novellas and the longer works on not one, but on on several levels. And they were very, very much influenced by the work of Darwin and the advent of um, the theory of evolution. And the, the War of the Worlds is, is very much influenced by, of course, the fact that understanding the microbiology and of that which had not been seen effectively, you know, H.G. Wells realised that this new frontier of, of uh, human understanding was in 
um, recognising that which we simply had not been aware of, or at least not formally aware of, um, in that, you know, when you look back through ancient literature, you see all sorts of references to phenomena that suggests that um, there, there was, in fact, a, a much deeper awareness. But yes, the, uh, that awareness was potentially forgotten. But um, yeah, The War of the Worlds is, it is, like many of H.G. Wells' books, very, very interesting to read. But um, in effect, the, the theatre, which is what he's really creating in that work, is, yes, it's, it's set in a uh, scientific and a virtual world in a, in a sort of avatar scenario wherein, um, you know, it is somehow deemed to be apart from the, or, or his present world, the, the era in which he was writing. But in actual fact, there were a lot of references to what was going on. So the, the line between reality and fiction is somewhat thin and it's obscured by the fact that, you know, as do many writers, he was in effect cloaking um, uh, ideas in uh, fairly thinly disguised uh, form, you know, in that, in that he was, uh, you know, yeah. the, the Martians, the, the uh, you know, they, of course, that was speaking to a microbiological threat and, you know, that the notion of that was very much linked into the real events um, and to, and indeed to pandemics that had, that had passed through and that he would have been aware of. Yeah, absolutely. So you, Melissa, you talk about, well, your work actually addresses a lot of uh, what is the relationship between human systems and this highly complex earth. So, I mean, so you're the perfect person to ask these questions. And that's, I just wanted to throw it in so that um, what conversation we had, it, it has a context to it. But you mentioned uh, in one of your um, in in your thesis about integrating fire. So I mm. actually I want to come back to the relationship between human systems and Earth and what your uh, what is your view on Gaia hypothesis. But I want to start from how like from one unit. So let's say you know integrating fire. How how do you see it? Well. Fire is, it, to understand fire, firstly, f Earth is the only planet in the solar system uh, that has fire as such, in that, though one finds fiery phenomena on other planets. Fire is, of course, a product of the burning of biomass, of, of basically carbon-based um, uh, materials. In other words, uh, fire cannot exist without life. The advent of fire on Earth is integral to the advent of life in that when one traces back the evolution of life on earth, one finds that fire came into that story very early on. Um, and, you know, essentially, I mean, when we look back through the ages, of course, we, we have a pretty accurate record of the um, way in which fire has manifested both in terms of its geographic uh, spread across the continents and across um and in terms of its intensity. So the reason for that is that fire is recorded in, in the fossil record um, in that, you know, we have uh, this particular uh, class of fossil, uh, which is, is uh, the Fusane record, and it's effectively, it's charcoal to all intents and purposes, um, the charcoal record. And so we know that the, the uh, relationship between fire and plant life is one of co-evolution. It is one of coexistence. 
And to the extent that some species, and indeed many um, extant species, many of the species that remain here today, are they're not just um, they're not they don't just live with fire, but their reproductive processes are wholly dependent on fire, and that um, quality, that feature, that functional trait within their um, their uh, behaviour. It, is, it stems right back to the origin of that species. And interestingly, um, though obviously, you know, the fundamental theory of, of evolution is that species adapt and therefore the species that are living today are, you know, have to an extent adapted to what in effect are lower uh, intensities, lower typical intensities and frequencies of fire than at some previous points in the uh, than in, in the record of life on Earth and in the history of life on Earth. So, for example, if we go back to the Carboniferous period, um, the gaseous composition of the atmosphere was different in that there was more oxygen, which in turn made um, the probability of combustion higher. And with that, there was a lot of plant matter. There was there was a lot of fuel, to, to use the term that you would in the fire sciences. And fires were raging, and they were raging at intensities and at scales that it would be actually quite difficult for us to picture today and to give an idea of the extent to which they were raging. Whereas today, we think of a blue sky, um, and we're used to blue skies because uh, essentially the uh, particulates in our atmosphere are, you know, we, we have uh, less particulate matter in our atmosphere. And so effectively, um, the you know, we have a, a clearer atmosphere. Um, in, in the Carboniferous period, we would not have seen blue skies. We would have seen skies that were, um, that, you know, they were tinged with reds, with oranges and with other colours, which were obviously a consequence of the fact that light was refracting off all these many particulate uh, all, all the many particles in the atmosphere from these constantly burning, raging fires. And so, you know, fire is, it is um, very much, it is is one of the, along with water, you know, this is not just the blue planet, it, it is the fiery planet. And that fundamental facet is not very well understood uh, within many, um, within many communities. And that it's, it's, become somewhat lost. Now I say within many communities because there was a time, there was a, a, an ancient time when fire was very well understood by humans and indeed by our closest cousins and not, you know, back by one, as it were, um, evolutionary generation, one species, one other species of, um, of human, but of a number and again, you know, this is not this is not hypothesis. This is this is evidenced by both um, anthropological and archaeological, and indeed biological uh, data. In that, you know, this is actually written into our DNA. We have certain adaptions as a species that are not found in even our closest um, relatives within the chimpanzees. And fire is so fundamental to our development as a species that were it not for fire and more specifically for our uh, control of fire, this being something that, you know, as I said, it dates back throughout not merely the entirety of the human lineage, but prior to that, we would not exist. 
Mm. And when I say we would not exist, our lineage would not exist. So we wouldn't be here. But fire over the epochs, over the you know ages of human civilization, has become increasingly invisible in the minds of the many. And of course, part of that is to do with the fact, or indeed a large part of that is to do with the fact that in many cultures, and particularly the West, fire, though it undermines our society and every facet of it, and that obviously we are an industrialized, um, we, are, we are a species that is reliant on technology. And that is reliant on all of the processes that fire facilitates. So for example, obviously fire facilitates chemistry, fire facilitates the extraction and the modification of many materials. We would not be speaking now were it not for um, those many processes uh, enabling the creation of the, the technology of the, the laptops and of the servers and of all the other things to enable us, enabling us to speak right now. Um, you know, we would not have this without fire. But fire is, as I said, it's a very misunderstood uh, phenomena. It is a very demonized phenomena. And in environments, um, many have, in effect, forgotten fire's role. And so theirs is not the awareness that there are species that are adapted to fire, species that would go extinct in its absence. Theirs is not the awareness that with regard to, to our management of fire, we do have options. We do have different ways in which we can work with fire. But at the end of the day, you know, I was speaking to the Carboniferous, I was speaking to there being previous periods in which fire's behavior was in many ways much more uh, dangerous than it is today. I mean, yes, you know, we have big wildfire events, but, um, you know, the point that I'm making here is that Yes, we have a certain degree of control over fire, but that the extent of that uh, control is limited. And it is essentially limited, obviously, yes, to the gaseous composition of the atmosphere, although that in the scheme of things isn't going to change anytime soon. It is also very much impacted by temperature and by humidity, which needless to say, at a time of climate change are changing. And that is a major contributing factor to obviously the fact that wildfires are now becoming more prevalent and they are becoming uh, more frequent in some areas. And in other areas, you know, they are not merely becoming more, rather more frequent, they're becoming more intense. Um, so the, the uh, manifestation of fire on earth is changing. We have a very big part to play in that. And then there are all sorts of things that we are doing um, and I've discussed them in detail in the thesis, but there are all sorts of things that we are doing that are yet further disrupting what are technically the current fire regime. So the typical behaviours of fire in the environment that have been prevalent within the Holocene, they are now shifting. And so really the, the thesis at its heart is drawing attention to the fact that there is this legacy and that um, you know fire is fundamental to not merely our own existence, but to that of all life on, on Earth, or all terrestrial, uh, not terrestrial life, all land life on Earth, rather. Um, and that we have choices to make, we have decisions to make, and how and why we make them will obviously be very much a product of our understanding of the world about us. And that, of course, comes down to uh, many, many factors. But amongst others, it comes down to our understanding of um, how and why we think the way that we do. 
And so another major facet of the thesis is looking to how other peoples think about fire and not just ancient peoples from across many different cultures, but of course, indigenous peoples. And when we looked at their uh, understanding of the um, phenomena of fire on earth, obviously, I mean, you know, indigenous peoples like uh, non-indigenous peoples have various different um, ideas and, you know, they, they, they're not, uh, one can't, strictly speaking, um, assume that, you know, they're, they're all in line, as it were, with one particular ideology. But nonetheless, yeah. we find that there's in, in an inherent understanding that fire is uh, to be um, understood as an integral part of life on earth and that that requires us to have a degree of humility in our um, actions in in regard of its presence yeah i mean just the image of um, having orange red skies and o3 maybe in the atmosphere uh and strong fires is it's just for humans for our day-to-day -day existence we just don't have enough capacity and not that we have evolved to you know think on these huge timelines so yeah it's it's just easier for us probably to push that away and just worry about what's going on but uh, what i realize i mean the myth of stealing fire prometheus it is so interesting that that myth of Prometheus and, you know, the gods. I mean, mm. we started from fire and now, you know, we are probably are becoming, you know, those gods which we were dreaming uh, in a way that now we actually want to terraform the earth itself. So it's funny that the word is terraforming, but it's now projecting it back that you know geoengineering has been talked about and uh, so so we are now coming out of the earth and the fire was maybe the first thing as you were mentioning you know which is so crucial the first piece of technology you know if you want to call it and now where we are probably you know it's maybe it's technical hubris of our species mostly because we always think that um yeah, that's the technology which will, you know, transcend us to the godhood. And But always what happened in the end is that we just then deal with the problem which has been created by the technology and then create some something else. So probably geoengineering would be another thing which would just destroy the core, possibly because any, any historian, any design scientist, someone who's, who understands a bit of complex system, generally they are not that positive about yeah. our <laughs> understanding yeah please <laughs> um yeah i mean i've i've spoken about um the the I, I guess you could call it the arrogance of some uh to assume that we are the gods now because the idea that we i mean to look at where that comes from um there was a and actually in the, the movie Prometheus, and it was by no means in, incidental, um, there was a line, obviously, um, so say delivered by a, you know, the sort of Elon Musk, as it were, of the movie, uh, this uh, tech um, guru uh, of whom uh, the corporation enabled the exploration that the, the, the film revolves around. Um, uh, he said, you know, we are the gods now. We aren't the gods now. What we are is a 
species that having evolved from fire and actually with you know within um a period that was actually extremely geologically and climatically stable the holocene uh, that being a period when yes you know we had a few v7 eruptions um and at some periods when we had quite a we had a, a flutter as it were of v6 eruptions of which the consequence was um volcanic winters amongst other things that uh, pushed our species to the limit but we haven't really uh you know we haven't really had much in the way of as it were, environmental hardship as such, or at least not in a sustained context, in that when um, major environmental events have happened, they have either been quite brief, and when I say brief, I'm speaking to a period of decades or at most a few hundred years as opposed to a geological epoch, and they have generally been quite uh, patchy in their expression in that there have been various places that for, for one or another reason have been rather less exposed than have others. This is a very different ball game that we find ourselves in now in that the scale of the climatic transition, if we're to look at the best and the worst case scenarios, we are looking at a scenario that from a geological perspective is taking us out of the stability of the Holocene and it is taking us into a period in which uh, events that really push our species to its limits are becoming much more frequent, much more severe. And of course, simultaneously to that, we as a species are many times more populous. And the, the upshot of that is that whereas in times ancient past, we were nomadic, Principally, we were nomadic because, you know, we've obviously only been settling uh, for a mere 10,000 years. So within and of our um, history as a species, you know, it's, it's, it's really a brief window of time that we have been, uh, you know, um, engaged in this thing called civilization. And now we're at a, at a point at which we've built all of these settlements, of which are very many, are going to be and they are, they're, they're right in the firing line of major environmental events. And of course, you know, the thing about these events, and this is really sort of pointing to some of the truths, as it were, in some of the ancient mythologies, we all know of the, the plagues of Egypt, and we all know of the narratives um, that essentially suggest that, you know, one event was followed by another, by another, and it all came back to human sin. Now, I'm not a religious person, but what I will say is that there are some truths within and of these ancient myths. And the reason for that, or the reason that they're speaking to truths, is that there are indeed correlations between certain classes of environmental events. So, for example, if you look back at the history of plagues, particularly the bubonic plague, um, it becomes very much evident that there are correlations with shifts in climate. And of course, the reason for that is it's actually very logical. It is because as and when uh, the likes of droughts are created, it displaces species, which in then in turn displaces the pathogens that those species carry. And when those species come into contact with humans, outbreaks a pandemic, which of course are worsened in a drought or in a period of environmental um, crisis. Because of course, we as a species are more vulnerable in that when we are physiologically um you know, uh, we are starved, as it were, if we're, if we're in a famine or if, you know, our, for any reason our immune system is suppressed, then we are more likely to succumb to the pandemic. So we tend to see 
couplings of environmental crises, pandemics, and all sorts of other things. It, it doesn't rain, but it pours. And we're now in an era in which you know these things are all converging. They're all coming to a head. Um, fire is right at the heart of that. In that, you know, as we speak, there are not thousands of now uh, dead, tinder dry, ready to combust trees out there. There are tens of millions, and this has been known for some time. And this is why, for example, the extreme fires in California of the last few years were anticipated. They weren't a surprise event, not not to the fire science community. It was there, it was written, it was very clear in the data, we are going to get extreme fires. And what the data is now saying, we are going to get more extreme fires. And the fires are not going to be contained just to California, they're going to be breaking out elsewhere. But of course, as I said, it never rains, but it pours because the fires in themselves, they then burn off the biomass, which in turn increases the probability of flooding and of debris falls and of various other uh, geological failings. And so, you know, we have that going on. Then, of course, we have the fact that the Greenland and the Antarctic, uh, the polar ice caps are melting uh, at a faster rate than some had anticipated. I say some because, again, in the worst case trajectories, the rates that we're now seeing were um, were there. They were, they were uh, forecast within those trajectories. And so sea levels are rising. And, you know, this is all going on. And this is the big wake up call. This is the thing that says, you know what? Humans, you have so much capacity, but you are not the gods of this planet. There are forces that are innumerably bigger than are you. And actually, I mean, it's all relative because, of course, you know, if we were to sort of step back from planet Earth and we were to step out into the universe, we find there are yet bigger, bigger events. Um, I mean, of which one, of course, would be a solar storm. You know, how many individuals have mm-hmm. pondered the fact that at any point, uh, you know, and we would have relatively little notice. We might, goodness me, have at most, what, 24 hours, if that, notice of a major solar storm event, which if it struck at the precisely right time, I mean, we'd be incredibly unfortunate for this to happen, but if it struck at just the right time, you know, when the planet is in uh, a particular orbit to the sun, at a particular proximity, on a particular axis, and in a particular season, then you might not be looking at, you know, what we've seen in the past, where in, for example, in Quebec, there was a solar storm that knocked out a number of the communications because, of course, it, it created, amongst other things, electrical surges. You could see half the planet, or possibly even more, have their entire electrical uh, structure, their, their uh, internet, their comms, their utilities, bang, knocked out. Yeah. And, of course, with that, you could simultaneously have firestorms because what happens when you have electrical surges on power cables, well, you get you get sparks. What what happens when sparks hit in dry season? You get fires. So you know these are these are the realities in that we don't know how bad things might get, but we certainly know that things are getting a lot more challenging than they have been. True. And so now is the time that we fundamentally, as a species, have a choice. We either accept we're not the gods. And these are the things that we actually need to confront. Or, you know, we try and build big walls and we try and kid ourselves. You know, we can we can uh, insulate ourselves from uh, forces that are immeasurably greater than our we. Yeah. I mean, this one freaks me out the most, the solar flare, definitely. And this is not even something which could 
like it's it has happened 60 million years ago or something this thing has happened 100 years ago and it's a very as you said it's, it's a blip like 10,000 years is a blip and even 500 years is literally just a blip since maybe industrial revolution and yeah mm-hmm. the, the prospect of solar flare and all of our communication all of our data in the cloud hypothetically mm-hmm. uh, and and electric uh, electronic grid I yeah I just don't understand that if like I don't understand at this point to be very honest that if we are just keep on going and keep on reproducing and keep on consuming I mean where and, and without actually realizing and paying respect to the place we are and the power as you said exists like outside of just our tiny echoey egos I mean how where, where do you think it would lead I mean is there any other place than just driving us off the cliff? If there is, I mean, it's, it would be great to find out. But just just a very simple introspection would reveal well, think, that. You know, what, what I'm seeing at the moment is actually, again, I mean, history does repeat itself. It really, you know, we like to imagine that ours is the capacity to build utopia, to build afresh. It's that's an ongoing narrative in human culture. But when you look back, you find that the same patterns, the same scenarios, they manifest time and again. And, you know, we see it right now. And that before I was speaking about the fact that the pandemic has brought out both the absolute best and the absolute worst in many people. And in that sense, we're seeing a bifurcation of society. Now, this isn't just happening ethically, morally, in terms of um, the way in which people choose to respond in that some people are saying, well, you know, uh, mine is the responsibility to help my fellow man as much as I can. And obviously, as and where they can to help the environment. At the other end of the spectrum, we have those people that are completely out for themselves and that have absolutely no concern for their fellow man. And then we have people that are kind of in between. Um, But actually in business, you know, when you look at what's happening in the business world right now, in response to the pandemic, we have they that have acknowledged that um, if they want to uh, basically ensure that they're going to have a business 24 months from now, they need to reevaluate what are the new risks, what are the new opportunities, and what is my capacity, what is my business's capacity to adapt to this And on the one hand, we're seeing people that are being very proactive and they are um, essentially developing new facets to their business in order that they adapt to this new scenario uh, while also retaining the flexibility so that, you know, whichever way this swings at the end of it, they've got a bit of leeway. At the other end of the spectrum, we find they of whom it is the assumption that this uh, situation will come to a close within uh, a controllable period. I, uh, you know, um, it will be not the circumstances that will set the agenda, but it will be us. We will be able to say, well, in the fashion of Trump, we'll have shut this down by X date, you know, we'll have shut this down by Christmas or whenever it might be. And that after that, there's just the assumption they can just go back. They can just go back to how things were. Um, and so, you know, be it in business or personally, we all have a choice. You know, we can all either accept, well, you know, there are there are things that are shifting now and 
we can take it upon ourselves to look at that shift and to see how we might adapt or you know we can be belligerent and we can say nope i'm not i'm not going to accept change um and i'm just going to stick here in the mud i'm i'm just going to you know carry on doing what i was doing um and so i think it's a mixed picture and although i'm using the analogy of you know business persons or individuals this is happening at a global scale in the, on the one hand we have nations that are uh you know doing their best to try and adapt to the circumstance we have the opposite and it's a very very mixed picture um and so my concern now is well it's firstly you know which of these two which of these two narratives is going to win out you know because ultimately yeah. um it we're in a we're in a tug of war and i'm not absolutely sure you know who who is going to win that war right now yeah um and also the fact that we don't know what's going to come up behind this you know we've only got we can only speculate and we could get lucky i mean you know it could be that hey you know 12 months from now um we're out of the pandemic we've got a vaccine it's been developed it's been deployed and we're all you know rolling along with ease or on the other hand you know to again look at the complexity of earth systems the fact that there are lower emissions of course means that there are amongst other things fewer clouds and fewer aeroplane uh, trails and so forth and that in turn has affected the atmosphere and one of the things again I read actually last week was that we're now seeing meteorologists and climatologists in turn warn that the probability of flooding will be higher this year. Hmm. And so now we've got to think about, well, you know, what's going to happen if not only are we dealing with a pandemic, but we're dealing with higher than higher than, um, you know, average flooding in this year. And it's, yeah, it's, it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly messy. And so uh, that is why I'm, I'm not pessimistic, but I very much, I very much walk straight down the line, and that I don't allow myself to get too optimistic. I don't allow myself to get too, um, you know, down in the mouth. I just look at all this stuff going on and think, well, you know, how are we going to try and walk the middle line here, and expose ourselves not to the bias, which is so easy when you know you shut down your blinkers and you're not, you're not looking at, at the full picture. You have come to the end of the first part of our conversation. If you are interested, another part is also available on the website. So please check that out.